when I was in the air and I was taking the thermals, I knew that basically I had two choices. One was fly over a pass back towards Interlaken to meet my friends, or the other one was fly over into the high mountains and explore the huge big cliffs, which um, is something really special that you can do with a paraglider. Episode 375. Nick Nainens is here to talk about paragliding, the Red Bull X Alps, and a little adventure sport you probably haven't heard of yet called Volbiv. This episode is sponsored in part by Kennedy Pet Food. You know your dog is the best part of your adventure, and a great way to keep him happy and healthy is by feeding him the best pet food. That's why you need to check out Canada Pet Food. Canada is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. Check out Canada.com slash podcast. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. If you haven't heard our last episode, that was episode 374, where Kurt and I discussed exciting new changes and format to the show, then do me a favor and go back and listen to that one. We've introduced a lot of new things, and we want you guys to know about it. Moving forward, we'll be posting one new ASP episode for free per week, and the second free weekly episode will be one from our back catalog with over 400 interviews. Of these 400 interviews, most of you probably have not had a chance to go back and listen to them all, so we decided to resurrect some of them and put them out for your listening pleasure. The new Patreon-only episodes will consist of new interviews from adventurers, same as we've always created, but we will also be starting up a new show series in Patreon called Life Outside the Box. These are episodes where we're going to be diving into how people have been successful at earning a life while doing something on a daily basis that takes them outside the normal realm of rush hour commutes and mind-numbing office days. If breaking away from the doldrums of normalcy is something you guys have always dreamt of, make sure you join us over on Patreon to find even more life inspiration and don't miss any of our new content over there. Join us at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. We hope to see you there and we appreciate everyone for supporting the show. Thanks, guys. Hey, today I have Nick Nanens on the horn with us. And Nick, is uh, he is a paragliding enthusiast extraordinaire. Nick is from New Zealand, from the South Island. He's currently in Switzerland. That's where I caught up with him today. And he was in the 2015 and 2017 Red Bull X Alps. He holds a New Zealand distance record. He's been flying, paragliding, about 10 years. He's a meteorologist, and prior to that was an engineer, which uh, those two things sound fantastic if you're a paraglider. So, Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, man, I am excited to talk to you about this. You know, we've had uh, paragliding on the show just two or three times, but what we've not had is someone that does your style of paragliding. And that's why I'm, I'm really excited about this. What I mean by your style is something called a Volbiv. And I would like for you to just to kick things off. If you can tell us what Volbiv is, then we'll have some context. Yeah, so Volbiv is a French way of saying fly and camp. And it means that you do like a multi-day trip through the mountains and wherever you land, you sort of uh, find a place to set up camp and then you position yourself to have a flight the next day. So in New Zealand, I have a look at the weather forecast, see how many days of good weather I've got and I plan the trip around that. And really, uh, I can imagine where I might want to go on the map, but it because it's a little bit unpredictable how the flying will go. Uh, you've got to be prepared for anything, and you could end up anywhere, and that's half the fun. Well, that sounds amazing. So what I love about adventure sports is people learn how to do a new thing. Like, oh, I learned how to ride a bicycle. Next thing you know, someone is circumnavigating the planet on a bicycle, right? Or uh, we even had a fellow who uh, built a bicycle out of a couch, out of a sofa, and he pedaled the sofa down the east coast of Canada. But... The reason I bring that up is it doesn't matter what the adventure sport is. People find a way to tour with it. We've had people on this show that have toured thousands and thousands of kilometers kiteboarding. And so, you know, you name it, people find a way to travel with it. But I have never talked to anyone who travels with a paraglider that uses that as the mode of transportation. I think that is so cool. Yeah, it's really great. And that's what's great about paragliding is the gear is so light that you can, and, and there's, you know, camping gear and stuff that's light as well, that you can basically have everything with you. And 
that's uh, really helps me to fly a little further because if I don't have a car to get back to, if I have everything with me and there's no reason to try and get back to where I started, then it encourages me just to have a go and see how far I can get. Mm. So here's another aspect of this that I, uh, I just really have to ask about straight out of the chute. When I've talked to people who paraglide, it's all about the, the conditions and learning how to read the conditions very carefully. And they'll fly from one mountain, one hill, wherever it is that they are, and they kind of memorize where the wind blows and if the wind's coming from this angle, where they're going to get an uplift, and if the wind's coming from the other side, what not to do. And what you're talking about is huge distances, cross-country travel, which means that you can't have it memorized. You're actually out there discovering it as you go. Now, does that is that more exciting? Do you find, feel like that's riskier or is it all just a part of the game? No, that's a good point. It, it, it does make it exciting for sure, sometimes a little bit too exciting. And when I started, pretty much I wanted to do cross-country flying straight away and I, like it was really about the fact that you can use this to get around the mountains, so that's why I learned. So I was keen to get started straight away, but my instructor said, no, first you have to learn how to fly, which is a fair point. It does take a while. <laughs> You have to, yeah. You have to have a really good understanding of uh, meteorology, and you have to be able, be comfortable to fly your wing in turbulent air, mm. which takes a bit of practice. Yeah. Well, not just any meteorology. You're flying over mountains, and that's crazy. Yeah, it is a bit crazy. The one thing that's a little bit of a misconception is, uh, like, our natural instinct is to think that the higher we are, the the more scary or dangerous it is, but actually the higher you are, the safer you are because the more time you've got to uh, fix problems if something happens to your wing and the more options you've got in terms of places that you can glide to, to either find lift or um, get to a good landing or yeah, get away from danger. I just know that in the mountains, there are so many variable air currents you know, the, the wind compresses as it blows up a slope and you go around a corner and, and you know, I do a lot of uh, mountain climbing and I can be 10 feet away from a ridge and be in almost no wind, walk 10 feet and have a wind that'll almost knock me off my feet. And I can't imagine what it would be like to fly a wing in those conditions. For sure. It's uh, often a very tricky part of uh, flying is figuring out what's going on with the wind. Uh, once you're in the air, it, it's a little bit easier. But, of course, if you're flying cross-country and you're flying into new areas, like you're saying, there's different micrometeorology and different microclimates, and you kind of have to figure it out from scratch each time. Uh, sometimes you get it wrong, uh, but usually you've got – well, you should have several um, fallback options. Um, so you can either go land or try something else. Uh but, yeah, I guess that's one of the things that's really challenging about flying. And uh, New Zealand is one of my favourite places to fly, partly because it's so complex and it's so interesting to try and figure out what's going on. Well, I don't think we're going to have enough time today to get to everything I want to get to because I'm just – I have a million and one questions. So we'll probably only be able to answer eight or nine of them. But um, one of the first questions, I guess we need to go back to the beginning a little bit for context. Um why did you take up paragliding in the first place? Well, I've done a lot of tramping, which is what we call hiking uh, in New Zealand, because often it involves muddy boots and climbing over through the scrub and whatnot. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of tramping in New Zealand. Uh, started doing that with Dad back when I was a kid, and I've always uh, been keen to explore more of the the valleys and and ridges in New Zealand. So this really seemed like the best way to get around. Like sometimes it can take you all day just to get through the forest um, down a mountain, but to be able to do that in twenty minutes um, effortlessly with amazing views is um, a really good uh, draw card even if it, you can only do that in certain weather conditions uh yeah it, it it adds an extra dimension to the experience to be able to have an occasional flight mm, i can't imagine in my uh experience i've done a lot of backpacking and it's slow 
but you also you're close to everything, so you really get to experience the details. Um, but then I've done mountain biking. Now that's faster. You can cover more distance. You start losing a little of the detail, but it adds the element of the fun of being on a mountain bike. But then I've done a little bit of uh, touring with a motorcycle in the backcountry where, you know, you, you have all your gear with you and you can do overnighters. And I thought, wow, I can really cover a lot of distance. And now instead of just going small distances and seeing the small things, now I can cover huge distances and get to the big views. I think the next step would be what you're doing, right? Because now you're up above it all and you can really see the lay of the land and, and all that. Um, what is that like to be up there floating and, and choosing where you want to go next just by looking around like a bird? Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. I mean, I guess uh, sometimes as paragliders, we think about the good days when you've got a really nice high cloud base and good thermals and great conditions and you can fly a long way. But it's also good to um, appreciate those days where the conditions aren't so good and there might be low cloud or very weak thermals. Um, because those days you can explore like closer to the terrain and you can have it see things a lot more intimately when you're high and you're just gliding over the top um, you don't have time to take it all in and you and you don't see all those details so yeah I remember when I was doing my first flights in New Zealand I was just looking around and I I wasn't flying very far because it I didn't I hadn't been flying very long and I wasn't very good at uh, like I've come a long way since then, but it was still way too much to absorb just the views in a short flight down the mountain. Mm. Is it a uh, is is it scary? I have to throw that out there to a lot of people being up off the ground, you know, under a cloth wing. That it's probably just really frightening, but once you get used to it a little bit, is it scary to you now? A lot of the time, it's scary. Yeah, for sure. It's it's not like uh, a ride at the theme park that everyone has done the same thing before over and over again. Like every new experience, anything could happen, and it's basically up to you and the decisions you make how it's all going to turn out. So, uh, yeah, I'd say the time I'm most apprehensive is just before I fly like if it's in a new area and it's unfamiliar and you know I might be 95% sure that I know what's going on but until I get in the air and start feeling what it's like and you know that first few minutes um, then I'm not 100% sure so yeah usually once I'm in the air I'm a lot more relaxed than sort of wondering what's going to happen before I take off but then when you fly into a new area, then it sort of all starts again. So it can be scary, but there's really the full range of emotions. Like sometimes the flights, you completely understand what's going on and it's just really relaxing conditions. Sometimes it's actually even slow, um, boring or frustrating. So there can be a lot of different um, emotions. A while back, a couple of years ago, I was at a, a paragliding site and I know nothing about paragliding, right? But I watched a guy take off and had what I thought was a great flight. He landed, and the instructor standing next to me says, man, that must have really scared him. So he called him on the radio, and, and sure enough, the guy was pretty shaken up. It didn't go as planned, and I was looking at it going, I didn't see anything go wrong, but there was something really meaningful to them about the, the way that the wind was and what had happened. And I'm just thinking about that 5% of unknown that you're talking about. You get up there, and things really aren't the way you think they're going to be, and it must take a lot of experience to uh, to know what to do or even know when something is going wrong. Yeah, so I was talking to my friend the other day and he said that before he started paragliding, he thought it was a sport for old people. And then when he, <laughs> and then when he did it himself, he thought, actually, I'm the king of the world, like I can do anything. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, as a spectator sport, it's uh, looking at it doesn't seem like a lot's happening. But I guess the two things that are special about a paraglider is it's kind of the slowest aircraft. So that means if there's any wind that you can't really go forwards into the wind much or at all. And it's also uh, there's no solid parts. So if there's any turbulence, it's possible for your wing to collapse, which it's designed to recover from. Uh, and and that we, that there's safety tests for that as before wings are sold. But... Basically, 
I guess these are the main things that we worry about is that we won't be able to fly where we want to because the wind will be too strong or that we uh, won't be able to keep the, the wing open in turbulent air. And, yeah, I guess uh, the other thing is we don't have a motor. So unless we can find some lift, then we have to land. That's just <laughs> gravity. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things to think about. Um, the more you fly, the more a lot of those things become automatic. But you're always, uh, I guess, because the conditions are always different, that's something that's always on your mind. And, yeah, sometimes it's really um, nothing to worry about and other times it's a little bit more intense. And, yeah, as you said, uh, there's some crazy winds in the mountains and often it is a bit more of a handful there. But it depends. Uh, well, it depends on a lot of things, yeah. Mm, so yeah. let's let's talk a little that's bit. that's what the fun is. Yeah, about this Volbiv business. So that the idea that you're trying to cover distance, maybe crossing mountain ranges, and what you just said about, well, it's too turbulent and it forces you down or, you know, you can't find the lift that you need and so you end up landing. Well, the plan is that you're going to take off again later, the next day, the same day, but that might mean that you have quite a climb ahead of you to get to a place where you can launch. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. So the lighter your gear is and the fitter you are, the more willing you'll be able to, to take risks with your flying in terms of not risks of getting hurt, but, uh, you know, whether you, you might have to land there if it doesn't work out the way you thought. And if you do take those risks, then you'll end up flying better. So, yeah, it helps to be fit and, and really and willing to go for a walk. It's uh, not, not always easy. <laughs> Check out bikeparts.com for all your cycling gear. They have a wide selection of over 60,000 bike parts and accessories. You can find everything you need, including tires, chains, tools, frame bags, cycling apparel, and even complete bicycles. They've got established brands like Shimano, SRAM, and Campagnolo, as well as the latest and greatest products from brands like Wolftooth, Physic, Zip, and Raceface. Need suggestions or have a question about what fits your bike? Their knowledgeable staff will answer any questions and get you rolling as quickly as possible. If you're in the great state of Colorado, stop by their full-service bike shop, Peak Cycles, in downtown Golden. Check out bikeparts.com. As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammut, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Just tell us a story, if you would, about that kind of an experience, just a, a day that you took off and, and how it all turned out. Yeah, okay. Um, re recently, uh, I flew from the northern part of France into Switzerland over four days. And on the first day, I took off and it was really slow conditions and it took me a long time to get anywhere. So after flying around for an hour or so, I just landed and had a picnic and uh, just sort of enjoy the view and just relax and wasn't so focused on trying to fly but just made the most of um, it being a nice, warm, sunny day. And then an hour later, I took off again, and the conditions were a lot better. So sometimes that's that's one way it can work out really well. Uh, then later that day, I was soaring, and I was trying to get enough height to cross a pass, and then I thought I would land and wait for the sun. So after waiting for the sun, I took off again, and then I just went down quite quickly, and it meant that I was walking for an extra half hour to get over the pass uh, because I just went down instead of going up. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, it can happen e every way. But 
like normally I don't get too upset about it because I'm out there in the mountains and I'm just enjoying having a little adventure and sometimes the flying works, sometimes it doesn't, but it doesn't normally help if you just get upset at yourself. So, Well, have you ever been in a situation where the conditions just really shut you out and you're way back in there somewhere, so you end up, you know, doing overnighters or multiple overnighters you didn't anticipate, anything like that? Uh, yeah, so last summer in New Zealand, I flew a good quick 50 kilometers into the mountains and then it got really cloudy and the sun stopped shining and everything shut down, so I had to land in the valley I was in. I spent the rest of the afternoon walking up to a pass and then in the late evening the sun came out and I knew it would be just perfect and it was. So I flew around to get some great views of Mount Aspiring and a place that I'd never flown before and it's a really remote area. And basically I had only an hour or so of um, good flying left in the day because it was just about to be sunset and I had a choice that I would either have to fly out to the road or I could choose to go and see this amazing scenery and have like a two-day walkout because the weather was going to get bad after that. So I thought, oh, well, you know, um, I've got the time to walk out and I've got the food with me, so I might regret it not taking this opportunity. I'm not sure if I'll ever get a chance to fly here again. So I enjoyed the last hour of the evening soaring around this amazing uh, huge glacier and this remote valley where there's no people. Um, I'd actually seen a tramper who wanted to go there um, that same night when I took off, but he was um, changing his plans because of the weather. So I was the only person there that day, but it did mean that the next day I was walking through the rain and it took me basically, I think it was, I don't know, a 12 plus hour day just to get down to the valley. Wow. (laughs) And it was a bit of an adventure in itself. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's that's what I paid the price. But, yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad that I did in hindsight. You know, I think about the overall experience. Um, the flight must just be amazing. But the walkout could be pretty amazing too. I think I would enjoy that. Probably enjoy flying a little bit more once you get used to it. But, man, I go backpacking just for the sake of going backpacking, right? So to be able to get into those areas quickly and then enjoy walking on the surface of the earth back out where you see all those details, in a way that's got to be double rewarding. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. If you're prepared to do a bit of walking, then you can sort of go deeper into the mountains with your flying and, yeah, you can have a better time than you would with just just one of those things on their own. Well, that's got to be part of the fun, you know, to to know that that's a possibility. And uh, Yeah, exactly right. That's that's part of the challenge of what you do. So let's talk about the distances that you've traveled doing this this Volbiv thing. Uh, what are some of the distances that you've managed to accomplish? So on a very good day, you can fly, well, 200 kilometers or more. Um, well, depending on what kind of gear you've got and where you are and then your experience and the decisions you make, it can vary a lot. But uh, some of the best days you might – well, I had a race once in South Africa, like on the border of Lesotho in the Drakensberg mountain range, and it was six days, and I flew every day. And a lot of those races, it was kind of like a Volbiv race. You, um, the, the, the flights were very important because it saved a lot of walking, and they were really strategic. But none of those flights were more than 10 kilometres, and – that sounds like it was a terrible race, but it was an amazing adventure. And I think the flights, even though they were really short, they made a big difference. So, yeah, it, it's not just the number of kilometres, but, uh, yeah, on, on, those, on some good days you can, you can go a lot further. But uh, some of the more memorable flights aren't actually that far. Well, do you have a story that can just help us to better understand what it's really like uh, just to, to be under that wing up there flying around in, in the beauty of these mountains? I had a flight, that one I've been talking about a few times from France to Switzerland last week. Uh, one day I took off at about nine in the morning 
it took me quite a while to find a launch that didn't have, you know, big tall trees around it so I could find a, a place that I could actually glide away from the mountain. And then I was thinking about landing in a town to get a bit more food, but I kind of didn't really expect it would be working so early and I got a thermal up to mountaintop height and for, that meant for the rest of the day I'd fly a big cross-country flight. I'm not sure exactly how far it was, but probably about 80 kilometres and um, that was really relaxing, like beautiful clouds, lots of space above the mountains. You could see clearly which way that you wanted to go. And, uh, yeah, there was sunshine everywhere. There was no big storms. Later in the day, there was some big clouds you had to watch out for. But, yeah, uh, I guess some of the nicest times is when you're flying with other birds like vultures, which occasionally happens in Europe, but, it's, um, yeah, especially in Asia. Uh when it's rough, you have to be really uh, on top of things with actively controlling the brakes on, on your wing. So if there is some turbulence that would push down on the top of the wing, you adjust the brakes to catch it so it doesn't collapse. And uh, actually, that's one of the really satisfying feelings about flying is when you're thermaling and you're always adjusting the canopy just to keep the wing flying really nice and... I don't know, maybe it's a bit like riding a wave. You're just working with nature and, uh, yeah, it's a really nice feeling. Like when I first started to fly, I was basically just doing it to get from A to B and to see some some mountains and explore the, the landscape. But since uh, I did a few, you know, since I started flying, I actually really like the feeling of uh, – feeling the air sometimes you can feel like a little bit of turbulence and that makes you look around upwind to, to see if there's a thermal that's causing it and these some of these things start to be automatic after a while but for me the, the feeling of the little movements jostling you around as you're flying through the air is really a nice part of it wow it must take a lot of experience to be able to recognize what's going on and I guess that, you know, if there's an updraft, a thermal or, or an upslope wind of some sort, there's got to be some down to replace that air that's going up. So, Well, sometimes you don't. I remember when I, I think it might have been my first cross-country flight in Australia and I took off. I spent ages trying to get through what's called an inversion. And finally I did get through and I, then I really like climbed nicely another several hundred meters. So I was really high. And then I glided off and on the next mountain, not that far away, I went through some sink and I tried my hard to get out of it, but it took me all the way to the ground. But it's, it's not like you need wind to fly. You're always gliding through the air. So even if you're sinking, you know, it's still at a controlled rate. So um, the air can't blow it down into the ground as well. So even if it's strong sink on the way down and by the time you get to the ground, it's, it's not so bad and, Basically, you just have to land. So you always have to have a little bit of margin just in case the air's uh, not quite as good as you thought it was. So it's always good to have plenty of landing options in easy glide. Well, how does it feel when, you're, uh, when you've been up for a long time? Is it, is it tiresome? I mean, if you fly these kinds of distances, you know, if I get behind the wheel of a car for six hours, I get worn out. How does that feel? Yeah, for sure. It's um, one of the things about doing long flights is to just make sure that you try and relax uh, for as much of the flight as you can because you can't really concentrate for that long. And, yeah, that it, it all depends on the decision you make, the, the decision-making. So, yeah, that's uh, probably just something that comes with practice. For me, I don't usually eat much, if at all. Um, and some people hook up a P-tube. For me, that's too complicated. I occasionally uh, pee out the harness. It's It's just something that's not – easy to do so you have to uh do it when it's smooth air on a big valley crossing um and some people drink during their flight to keep hydrated i don't worry about that but I, I basically try to sort of be really relaxed and almost meditative when i'm flying so um yeah i, I try and think pretend that i'm a vulture <laughs> wow so Man, hour after hour, you're trying to stay relaxed because you, you don't need to burn up your, mm -hmm. your concentration quotient, right? And uh, so you're talking about being kind of in a meditative frame of mind. Can you explain what that is for you, how that feels? 
Well, I just try and be relaxed. Sometimes you feel that your legs are a bit tense and you just be aware of that and relax them. And uh, I, I guess after a while you get better at it. But uh, actually one of the things I do is I'm always uh, taking photos or doing short little videos as I'm flying. And one thing I do on the videos is say what I'm thinking and what, and what I'm, uh, you know, how I'm making decisions as I'm going. So that probably helps me focus as I'm flying or, yeah, maybe the verbalising what I'm doing helps me somehow or that at least I'm used to doing that. But it, it's also good for looking at your flights afterwards to see, you know, what was I thinking and why did I make those decisions and were they good decisions or did I not notice some things that I should have noticed or so on. So, yeah. Mm. So you have a YouTube channel, I, I guess. Other people could watch what you're doing a little bit what what is that youtube channel yep it's uh sh share my joys so i uh, make a lot of videos and they're mostly like kind of diary entries they're not polished um production videos they're more just me remembering each flight so they probably make more sense to people who are actually uh fly flying themselves or want to do those same kind of flights but occasionally they're Maybe it's insightful into how um, how I approach it mentally. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. So that's share my joys, which I love that. <laughs> that's cool. Share your joy. So share my joys. That's also your blog is sharemyjoys.wordpress.com, right? So it looks like if you type share my joys, whatever the the social media is, that's how to find you. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the blog is sharemyjoys.com as well it, it, it redirects but uh yeah i've got a lot of stuff out there i haven't put all my videos up thank god because there's probably way too many as there is <laughs> but and i've also got a lot that i intend to put up as soon as i get some computer time <laughs> but at the moment i'm traveling but yeah it's a lot of fun and uh sometimes planning your flights or or remembering your flights is just as fun as actually doing them you don't have cold hands and you don't need to pee and you're not hungry. So, uh. <laughs> Well, I was kind of curious about the weather up there. Uh, it could get quite cold, I would think. How do you stay warm? Yeah, hands especially because your hands are sitting upright holding the brakes. So uh, you should see how many clothes I had for the last couple of months. I went through China, uh, then Morocco, and then up to the Alps. And uh, basically I just wear everything that I own. My overnight kit, I don't have much. I've got a really small sleeping bag um, because I just wear all the down jackets and stuff the same as when I'm flying. And uh, I've just got some new gloves. They're hopefully a little bit better. But, um, yeah, often I get cold hands after a long flight at high altitude. In Morocco, I was getting to 4,500 metres. I think I even went over 5,000 metres on one of the flights. So, yeah, it's pretty cold up there. So what happens if it rains? I mean, if, if your wing gets wet, then uh, does it fly right? I mean, does is rain really bad or, or can you just go through? Rain is pretty bad. If it's a light shower, it will basically dry as you go. But you don't want to get the wings wet because they, well, they're just not designed to fly like that. So it depends on exactly what which wing you have, but especially the performance wings uh, don't don't deal very well with uh, getting wet. So do you have a story about a time that you got caught in too much rain? Um, yeah, I guess as well as rain, you can get caught in cloud. Uh, one time I got caught in cloud and luckily I wasn't in there for too long, spiraled down, saw the ground and popped out and uh, you landed with a wet wing, but I was able to dry it the next day. Uh, occasionally i've been snowed on but if the rain is showery like if it's just isolated you know clouds here and there that are raining you can avoid them just by flying around them and you can see the rain um if you can't see it it's probably really light so it's not too bad but i guess if it's all coming in and you're on the side of a mountain you've got nowhere to go then you have to there are situations you have to watch out for so yeah, generally I'm pretty good because generally I'm on my own and there's not a lot of support. So I have to 
have a bit of a safety margin to to stay away from uh, stuff like that. Dogs make the best partners for outdoor adventures. Good food keeps your dog happy and healthy for those big days. So feed your pets Canaday. Canaday is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. In keeping with their commitment to pets and their people, Canaday has taken the first steps at Canaday Farms to getting involved in growing the ingredients that they use. Go to Canaday.com slash podcast to try Canaday for free by requesting a free sample and you'll get other special offers too. That's C-A-N-I-D-A-E dot com slash podcast. Again, that's Canaday.com slash podcast. I can't imagine, you know, all the weather. You said you were an engineer before, but you just became a meteorologist. Was it uh, flying that encouraged you to go into meteorology? Yeah, for sure. Like I learned a lot about meteorology just from paragliding, both um, doing the course and um, experience it myself and then reading up anything I could about it. But, yeah, both uh, flying with a sailplane or, or glider pilot was really helpful for me because they think about weather on a different scale than we do. They're not so concerned with the micrometeorology. Uh, well, they still are, but they, they, they fly over bigger distances so that they're thinking about things on a different scale. And with um, weather forecasting, that's a bigger scale again. So there is definitely some overlap. Uh, but some of the things that I've learned aren't necessarily that relevant to everyday flying, but for sure they make it more interesting when you've got more things to think about and, and uh, yeah, you just can understand more of what's happening around you. Mm. It makes it makes it more interesting. You know, I'm looking at your blog here. Again, that's sharemyjoys.wordpress.com. And I'm just going to throw out what some of the blog post titles are so our listeners can get a feel for the magnitude of what you're doing here. New Zealand Summer with Zalps. Is that Z-Alps or Zalps? Oh, that's just the name of the wing I'm flying at the moment. So it is a Zalps. Alps, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I call it the Z Alps, yeah. Z Alps, there you go. Uh, Red Bull X Alps in 2017. Red Bull X Alps 2017 with the Matterhorn. Uh, Italian Lakes, Red Bull X Alps. You've got Southeast Queensland and the uh, NSW Border ranges. Here's uh, the northern sojourn of Red Bull. Lots of Red Bull stuff in here. Lots of locations. Here's New Zealand again, um, Bali, and you know as I go through here, I see that you have traveled a lot. Here you are in the Pyrenees, uh, the Georgia Georgian Caucasus. I mean, you have traveled around the world to different mountainous areas and uh, just to fly this thing. Yeah, that's right. So I spent a year in Antarctica and saved up a bit of money there. And also, like, I, you know, had everything in storage already when I came back. So it was pretty easy to take a year off and travel. And that ended up being two years off. And uh, that's something I've been meaning to do for ages anyway. So that really helped improve my flying. Like, the biggest thing you can do with your flying, obviously, it helps to, to read about it and to, to learn as much as you can from other people. But what really helps is to go out and practice. So if you get the time to do that, that, that helps a lot. And that's one of the tricky things. Like with any sport, I guess it's good if you have the opportunity to do it, to fit it in with the rest of your life. And that can be uh, a lot easier if you live close to a good flying side and if it works with your job and your family and stuff like that. You know, I was getting ready to soon do an episode on just that where I talk about how to have a kind of a, adventure-focused lifestyle or how to work more adventure into a lifestyle. And I, I think it's fascinating listening to our guests when they tell us how they do it. So what kind of things have you done? I mean, you ha almost have to be purposeful about it. You can't accidentally become an excellent paraglider, <laughs> right? So what have you done in your life to, to accommodate this sport? Well, to start with, I was really keen and I was flying whenever I could. Uh, but then... Yeah, the, having that time where I wasn't working was really helpful as well. So, yeah, then again, other times, like in Antarctica, I didn't fly at all, but I came back and I I didn't really worry about this um, being current thing. I could, I, I didn't feel that I 
had to relearn it from scratch. It was just like jumping back on a bike. And also when I was in Sydney, I didn't paraglide an awful lot. And I was quite happy with that. I'd already had my big break and I was happy just to spend my time doing other things. It's good to, to be a bit more three-dimensional as a person. But uh, yeah, like now the opportunities come up where I've been able to take a little bit more time off work again. So I just thought, why not? So yeah, I've, I haven't been, uh, I've just been opportunistic about it basically. Yeah. If, if there's been the situation in my life where I can focus on, on one thing, I'll do it. But if not, I'll do something else. So when you go high up, um, do you ever use oxygen? A lot of the American pilots do, especially like the ones flying in this, this year is like in California. We use oxygen because they regularly get so high. But when I go to these places, it's difficult with the infrastructure. Uh, and I basically have everything with me and I don't want to have to um, spend a lot of time organising all these logistical things. So I don't really go on expeditions that are, you know, really well planned out. I'm more of a uh, opportunistic sort of the way I do things. So like when I went to South America, I, um, I'd get out and I'd climb up some hill that I saw on the map um, and I'd try and find a takeoff and then I would try and fly. And sometimes it would work and I'd have an amazing trip and other times it wouldn't really work or the weather wasn't good. So then I'd just get back in the bus and go to the next place. I didn't have like a set in stone A to B route that I had to do. I was just playing it by ear and making it up as I went. So um, it doesn't really suit me to yeah, get all the gear and have oxygen and things like that, but other pilots do, do use it. So when I'm flying really high, I'll basically work my way up to it and acclimatize. Uh, so yeah, the first, my China trip, I was trying to get some real high flights and I did get up to 6,000 metres or so, but obviously I didn't do that on the first day. I'd spent a lot of time at altitude in the weeks before that. So 6,000 metres, we're talking about 20,000 feet, more or less. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. Wow, yep. that is up there. That was going to be my next question is, is how high have you flown 20,000 feet on a paraglider? Now, how high can someone go? Yeah, so basically the, the limit just depends on the the aerological conditions where you are. So if you're in dry, arid conditions and the ground's already high, then you can fly very high on a good day because those clouds are very high. Uh, I, I know uh, people that have flown, well, um, one of the other guys, the French guys, Antoine Girard, who's also in the X-Alps, he uh, the year before last went to Pakistan and flew over Broad Peak. So that's an 8,000 meter peak. Mm. So I, I'm not sure if that's the highest anyone's flown, um, apart from in a thunderstorm, which is not really recommended. Um, but yeah, basically depends on where you are. When I was flying in Southeast Queensland in Australia, we're by the coast and the, the air is coming from the sea. So often we'll be hitting the cloud base at only 800 metres, which is, yeah, 2,000 feet above sea level. So wow. it, it all depends. So what I'm gathering is that if the if the earth goes high, if the mountains are high, if the terrain is high, then that supports higher flying because you get the the thermals off the ground heating up and, and the currents that are pushed over the peaks and that sort of thing. Is that Do I have that right? Yep. And we're actually talking about just this very thing last night. So... There's actually a formula that uh, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with dew point temperature, sure. but it's the temperature that air has to be cooled down to you start getting condensation on your beer so, or whatever. So once it reaches that temperature, it starts, um, well, basically clouds start to form. So if you have a dew point temperature that's different from the actual temperature by, uh, you know, 20 degrees, which in Fahrenheit, what's that? About double that, I suppose. Yeah, um, then it's yeah it's 400 feet per degree in Celsius. So if you have a 20 degree dew point depression, it's called then um, then your cloud base is 8,000 feet. Cool. So there's actually a formula you can get a feel for for what your height of your flight's going to be just based on dew point. Yeah, that's right. If you know that, um, then you can figure it out. So basically, the drier the air is, the higher the clouds are going to be. 
<laughs> Man, we could talk about this stuff forever. And we're kind of running short on time, but I have so many more questions. It's just so fascinating to me. Will you uh, just close us out with a story of a flight that was really memorable for you, something that might uh, help other people understand the reason why that paragliding might be a good sport for them? Okay, I'll, I'll just talk about one of the really recent flights that I had. So it was after three days flying through from France and, and I was in Switzerland and I was right next to those big mountains by uh, the Eiger, the famous north face of the Eiger. And I camped on this grassy ridge at about 2,000 metres or 6,000 feet and uh, had a beautiful night. There was some showers through the night and some storms, so I was glad that I had my tent with me. And the next morning it was really cloudy, so I waited for about eight hours before I took off. And then after... When the sun came out, it actually was a good thing because it meant there was thermals, but thermals led to showers. So <laughs> when, I was, when I was in the air and I was taking the thermals, I knew that basically I had two choices. One was fly over a pass back towards Interlaken to meet my friends, or the other one was fly over into the high mountains and explore the huge big cliffs, which um, is something really special that you can do with a paraglider. Um, and, and I was there, you know. But if I explored the cliffs, then by the time I tried to get back to over the pass, it would probably be raining. And it was. So that's what I decided to do. I went in and explored the cliffs. And it meant that I waited an hour or so for the rain to clear. And then I could take off again in the next little gap between showers and, and managed to fly home. So, yeah, it's, it's all about timing sometimes. And I've had a lot of times in my 10 years of paragliding where of course I've got the timing totally wrong and you might, they were just my friends uh, the, the night before at the, the same place. They were just down the ridge that hiked up that um, were planning to spend the night up there and fly down in the morning. And then during the storms, they were totally drenched and they thought, no, it's, it's uh, not going to happen. So they hiked down again. And by the time they got downhill, the sun came back out. So <laughs> it can happen both ways, but uh yeah, it really is a, a game where you're playing with nature and uh, there's risks for sure in terms of safety. You have to understand what you're dealing with and you have to take care of yourself and make good decisions. But often the risks are just that you might have to walk up the hill again or you might get drenched. So, uh, yeah, sometimes it's, well, it comes with experience and you've you got to hang in there and eventually you'll get some good luck, I guess. Wow. You know, what I love about what you're seeing there is that what you're doing depends so much on what the weather is, what nature is throwing at you. You think about uh, people that do a lot of sailing, you know, the cruisers that spend time sailing around the planet, they're kind of at the mercy of the winds and the storms, you know. And when you go backpacking, in a way you're at the mercy of the elements. When you're mountaineering, certainly you have to have a weather window to get to the high peaks. There's so many things that uh, when you're in nature enjoying your sport, where you have to work with nature, and I don't want to get overly philosophical, but I just love the idea of that we're, we're not in control. You know, we're not in some sort of a climate-controlled space where we can decide what to do with our time. We really have to work with nature, and there's something special about that. You know, connecting with nature on that level and, and being a part of it. Um, you know... Just in general, how has paragliding changed you as a person? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think about it like that as well. So it's a good analogy, isn't it? So instead of just trying to fight your way through and with, with life, you try to think, how can I uh, use the situation that I'm in to, to my advantage and how can I make the best of it? And, and um, how can I use my energy in a productive way rather than trying to oppose something that I can't oppose or whatever? So... Um, it's it's thinking about what you can do to be effective and it's not concentrating on using your energy in ways which like don't make any difference and just um, basically wasting your time so yeah there's there's a few things like that in in paragliding that are a good analogy for how, how you should live your life I suppose mm, yeah I like that you know it's it kind of reminds me too you see people try to swim up a river with a decent current in it and they're just getting nowhere and then they turn around and go with it and man you can cover some ground there's something about 
learning to work with our circumstances instead of against them, isn't there? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So uh, try and have a good time. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, it's it's funny actually because the, the X-Alps is a race over a set course and people, like the, the route gets announced a few months before the race and everyone's like, oh, which is the hard part of the race? What's special about the route this year and all that? And it's like, well, the route... The hard part of the route is when the weather's bad. <laughs> it right. really comes down to that. Yeah. And people spend a month or two driving around in their vans trying to figure out the ins and outs of the route and 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 uh, to plan their strategy and all that kind of thing. But it all goes out the window when the weather is a little bit different to how you thought and some things become completely irrelevant and others become a lot more important. So, yeah, basically you've just got to yeah go with the flow. Well, Nick, I think it's so cool that that your sport gets you out there this much. That you get to go to such neat places. And even when you're not flying, if you're planning the next flight, just exploring the route like you're talking about, that kind of thing. What a what a great life, man. What an interesting way to live it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, definitely it's a great sport if you love looking at maps and have and you've got a lot of imagination. <laughs> I can see that for sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Adventure Sports Podcast today and share your passion about paragliding with us. Man, I'm excited. I, I, I'm i going to have to try it. I'm going to have to try it. Yeah, great. Well, you live in a great part of the world for it. It's some pretty big conditions there, but uh, there's some. I'm sure there's some good instructors there that will uh, get you uh, on, on the right path. Well, yeah, yeah. Colorado is one of the places where it could just be a ton of fun. Well, Nick, tell us one more time how people can follow what you're doing and maybe get in contact you if, with you if they have questions. Cool. Yeah. Well, aside from getting out there, I love telling stories. So I've got lots of blogs on sharemyjoys.com and on YouTube at sharemyjoys. And there's also a Facebook, same again. So yeah, if it inspires you to get involved in the outdoors and understand nature a bit better, that's great because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I love it. Right on. Well, and for all the listeners out there, hey, thank you for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. Until the next show, make sure you do get out there and have some fun. All right, thanks for tuning in to the Nick Nadins paragliding episode. I thought that was a good interview and definitely learned a lot about Volbib. Never heard of that before, but it sounds like a great way to uh, spend some time. We want to thank Helena, Will, and Gavin. They are our newest Patreon supporters. Thanks, guys, for helping to support the show. The rest of you, I hope you join us over on Patreon. Don't miss out on the new stuff that we're going to be putting out. Until then, make sure you guys do get out and have some fun.